All right. Thanks for coming out. So I recognize I'm the last stop between you guys and happy hour, free happy hour. So it's a dangerous place for me to be, so we're going to kick things off here and make the most of our time. So my name is Keith Jarrett. I'm business development manager of cloud economics and cost optimization at AWS. And our team, on the, our team is really focused on working with our customers in a way that we can start arming them with a financial justification to move to the cloud. That's really where we were born, right, is arming them with that financial justification. Right, but just as important as, as that is making sure we're working with our customers on a proactive basis to make sure that they're taking those steps to set themselves up to realize all those financial benefits. Right, and that's where, really where the story of cost optimization comes in. Right, so by show of hands, how many folks in the room know what their AWS bill was last month? Wow, good for you guys. I was expecting about half. Right, okay, a little harder question. How many know what their bill should have been last month? All right, okay, all right, that's about right, right? So a lot fewer, right? And the reason for that is just because that's a hard question to answer, right? There's a lot of things that are going to go into that type of analysis, right? There's a lot of variables impacting our bill, right? So we're going to start talking about those today and identifying what those variables are so that we can be proactive in managing them, right? So I told you a little bit about who I am. Let me tell you about who I think you are, right? What you're doing here, right? You're using the platform. You like the platform. Right? Or you're thinking about using the platform and you're excited about it. Right? You're excited about the innovation and agility it enables you. Right? But maybe you're spending a little bit more than what you had planned. Right? Or maybe you just want to spend a little bit less. Right? And for the folks in the room that know me, know that my wife and I, this August, had a team of plumbers out to our house right? to dig up our yard. Right? And they dug up our yard because we had a leaky pipe. Right? And I probably, in hindsight, could have been able to tell we had a leaky pipe by noticing the wet sidewalk outside of our house, right? But we knew we actually had a problem when we got July's water bill for $2,000, right? Kind of a shell shock there, right? And what happened was we were being billed for everything we were using, whether we needed it or not, right? So when it comes to our cloud infrastructure, the same principles apply, right? How do we make sure we're turning that corner to make sure that we're paying only for those resources that we need, not just what we're using, right? And that's going to be the focus of our conversation today, right? So our goal here is to provide a framework or approach to start tackling cost optimization, particularly at scale, right? We're going to share some of the lessons that we've learned through working with some of our most successful customers around cost optimization, right? And hopefully leave you with some actual next steps that you can take from here today Take back to the office next week. Start implementing right away in order to reduce your next month's bill. Right? And so we've broken out this story into three chapters. Right? And unsurprisingly, this is a chapter that starts with architecting best practices. Right? Making sure we're building with costs in mind. Right? And the reason for that is because there's a big carrot that's waiting for us if we do this well. Right? We've seen analysts like IDC tout the financial benefits of moving to the cloud. Right, whether it's an ROI of nearly 600% or break-even point at six months, you know, there's all these financial benefits that await for us if we're doing the right things. Right? 
And along with those benefits, there's business benefits, whether it's you know, increased productivity, decreased risk, so we're able to do more with less, right? And we've heard this story come from our customers as well, right? We've heard GE talk about how they've been able to reduce their total cost of ownership by over 50%. Right? And they're able to do that not just by focusing on core resources or services like compute and storage, but really looking across the breadth of data of his portfolio, focusing on resources or services like Aurora or Trusted Advisor that can help identify the waste within their environment. Right? But the bad news that I'm here to break to you is that unfortunately it just doesn't just happen. Right? We need to make sure we're taking those actionable steps so we're setting ourselves up for success. Right? And when we think about what it means to be well-architected on AWS platform, we have a team called the Well-Architected Team, right? And they've identified what these components are that define what it means to be well-architected, right? And, and it's building with performance, reliability, security in mind, and maximizing these pillars all for the lowest cost possible, right? And when we go out and we build our applications, it's so common for us to put so much energy and focus on those first three, right? And for good reason, like they're really important, right? So in that sense, in a lot of times, we put just a little bit less focus on the cost component, right? So that's what we're really gonna focus on today and tease out some of those best practices, right? And so when we start talking about answering the question I just asked you, which is, you know, what should your bill be, right? There's all these things that play into that equation, right? There's things that are gonna have a direct impact on our bill, what services we're using, how much of them, Right, are we using auto-scaling? What pricing models are we picking? But there's all these kind of environmental, non-direct factors as well that are in play. Right? Are we setting up the right governance policies? Are we using, you know, are we using uh, appropriate chargeback models? Right? And so when we start thinking about these things, we start diving into this, the true economic value proposition of the cloud is being able to innovate around cost, right? Continue to experiment and find ways to strip out additional costs within our environment. And there's a lot of ways we can do that, right? There are so many levers we, a customer can pull in order to reduce their spend, right? So the first question is, well, where do we start, right? Where is that lowest hanging fruit that we should focus on that's going to have the biggest impact on our next month's bill, right? And what we've seen through working with customers is that those who are most successful in this space are doing the same things over and over again. They're pulling the same five levers consistently and reliably. Right? So what are those five things? Right? It's making sure we're picking the right instances. It's making sure we're architecting to increase elasticity or maximize elasticity within the application, pick the right pricing model, optimize our storage environment, and when we combine it with this ongoing continuous improvement where we're measure, measuring and monitoring our environment, we come up with what we call the five pillars of cost optimization. All right, so let's dig into these this a little bit. All right, so AWS offers over 60 different instance types and sizes now, right, which is a really cool thing from a technical perspective, right, because I get to go out and I get to pick the right instance that matches my application, I get to meet my technical performance requirement, life is good, right? But if I start overlaying cost into that conversation, right, and I start thinking about how do I not only meet my technical performance requirements, but I do it for the lowest cost possible, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more complicated of a decision, 
right? And the way we typically do this is we'll look at the resources that have been deployed and we'll leverage CloudWatch metrics. So we're looking at the utilization of what we've deployed and we're asking ourselves, are there opportunities to downsize those instances? Right, so out of the box, CloudWatch doesn't give us CPU, storage, and network utilization. Customers can take that step further and set up their custom CloudWatch metric for RAM utilization. And we combine those metrics, we get a really good view into not only what we've been billed for, but what we're using within those instances, right? And we can identify those candidates for downsizing. Right, it's a really good start to our journey. All right, and then the next component is making sure we're increasing our application elasticity, right? And so what that means is we're using resources and when we're done, we're turning them off, right? Use a resource when you need it, turn it off when you don't, right? No one in the room is gonna struggle with that concept because I think that's what's brought us here today, right? That's a the compelling value prop economically from the cloud, right? But I think customers, particularly early on in their AWS usage, may struggle a little bit more with how we start operationalizing that elasticity, right? Particularly at scale, right? Because I got my dev environment, you know, call it 15 instances, right? I can turn off those instances at the end of the day, pretty straightforward, it's gonna take me a couple minutes. I can do the same thing tomorrow morning, right? Turn them back on, right? Or not show up tomorrow, and I don't have to worry about it, right? And so where we start this process is really looking for those quick wins, right? Look for those dev test environments and non-prod environments where we can, where we have instances that are running always on that shouldn't be, right? And when we find those instances and we turn them off, if we're turning them off outside of business hours, right, that gives us the opportunity to save up to 80% off always running resources, right? And we can take that step further and we can start looking at our serverless architecture for Lambda, combining Lambda with CloudWatch, and then starting to set us up for automated scheduling. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then when it comes to our production environments, it's all about how do we get more granular and more precise with our auto-scaling, right? How do we make sure that we're scaling horizontally so we can meet our peak capacity needs when we need it, but we're pulling that back when we don't, so we're paying for something much less, right? And we've seen partners really successful in this space working with our customers, right? GorillaStack is one example who was able to work with our customers to set up a predefined scheduling policy right, to help this customer save money. So GrillSack came in and worked with our customer for their dev test environment and defined a, that scheduling policy. They said, when I come in, my dev team comes in at 8 a.m., I want those instances to turn on and start scaling up through the course of the day. And I want them to turn off when they leave at 6 p.m. Right? And what you see is that we get to 6 p.m., the devs aren't quite done with their work for the day. They hit the snooze button, and then it turns off when they are done at 8 p.m. Right? And by doing that, we're able to save 53% off a daily always-on rate. Right? Our third pillar is around picking the right pricing model. Right? We want to use reserved instances or RIs for our always-on workloads or predictable workloads. Right? And we want to use on-demand and spot for our spiky variable workloads. Right? And it's probably not going to surprise anybody in the room to hear RIs be a key component to this conversation today, right? And the reason for that is because RIs enable customers to make a commitment on a one or three year basis and in exchange for that commitment, save up to 75%, right? So it's a really compelling financial benefit to purchasing those RIs. And I think over time, customers continue to become more comfortable and familiar with RIs and how to manage and implement them. But I think so commonly we hear customers talking about RIs as a pure compute discount mechanism. Right? 
And the reality is our eyes extend beyond just CC2 to services like RDS, ElastiCache, DynamoDB, right, Redshift. And so as we start applying our eyes across these various services, you can start to see how our eyes can have a really meaningful discount mechanism across the breadth of our workloads or our applications. Right. And last month we announced a couple new features to our eyes to make them even more compelling. Right. And so if we look at the history of EC2, right, and we see this accelerating innovation, right, now today we have almost, what, a little bit over 60 EC2 instances available, right? And with each new instance and each new generation, AWS continues to pack new innovation, new economics, and new price performance into each instance class, right? And so what we're left with is, you know, how do I start balancing the flexibility in order to take advantage of those latest and greatest instances with the discount potential of RIs. Right. And that's where convertible RIs come in. So last month, AWS announced the release of these new flavor of reserved instances, convertible RIs. And convertible RIs give us that balance. Right? They allow us to now be able to convert RIs across instance families, sizes, operating systems, and tenancies, whether you're running shared or dedicated instances. Right, so now we can start striking that balance a little bit better. Right? And we started to see customers use these convertibles in a really meaningful way, in a very rapid way, right? where previously they weren't able to purchase RIs. And one customer we worked with recently was one such customer that was unable to purchase RIs because of uncertainty in their business model, right? unpredictably in demand, Right? And their architecture is still evolving and settling out. Right? And so as they approached this launch date, they were only running about 10 to 15% coverage of their EC2 instances with RIs. Right? And as we rolled out the convertibles, this customer was able to take advantage of that in a really meaningful way. And over the course of a month, increased their RI coverage by sixfold. Right? And as a result for that, they're able to drive down their unit cost by almost 40%. So there's a really compelling case here for this customer where previously they were unable to take advantage of RIs. Right? So when it comes to these reservations, our first step is making sure that we're covering our always-on resources. Right? And when we talk about those always-on resources, again, we're kind of balancing flexibility and discount. Right, so I typically recommend look at those always-on resources and target about 75-80% coverage of those resources. Right? And by doing that, we're setting ourselves up so we have a little bit of flexibility in case our needs change or our architecture changes over time. And from there, it becomes really important for us to make sure we're getting everything we paid for, right? driving utilization as high as possible. Right? And so for those architectures that are pretty well-defined, you have a level of comfort in what the architecture is. Right? Standard RIs are a really compelling story because they offer us even steeper discounts versus convertibles. Right? And so there's flexibilities built into standard RIs because we can merge and split within instance families and across AZs. But if we need more flexibility in that because things are growing, things are evolving, we can use convertible RIs to take advantage of the conversion mechanism we just talked about. Right, so if we look at what's better than 75%, 90% is typically better, right? right? Spot offers customer savings of up to 90%. And so Spot can be a really compelling 
pricing model for those spikier variable workloads, right? And the way Spot works is a customer comes in and sets a maximum willingness to pay, and Spot price is dictated by supply demand factors, right? So as the Spot price is trending below our maximum willingness to pay, our instances keep running. And the moment that that Spot price exceeds our maximum willingness to pay, Amazon will give us two minutes to wrap up our instance, right? And in exchange for that, we'll get these steep discounts, right? And if we're looking at what that discount means from an architecture or workload perspective, 90% means roughly one cent per core hour, right? So if I'm running a 10,000 core environment, I can run that 10,000 core environment for $100 an hour, right? So really, really compelling financial argument here, right? So then the next question is, well, where do I look for those applications or instances that are really good spot candidates? Right, and I should be looking for those workloads that have flexible start-stop times, right? Things that have either really urgent, large compute need, or applications or business models that are inherently highly subject to infrastructure costs, right? In other words, we need very low infrastructure costs in order to be, become profitable, such as ad tech. Right, so the spot market, the way it works, it's pretty simple, right? I mentioned you set a maximum willingness to pay. And I'm gonna look at an example here for what that means, right? So if we look at the spot price for US East uh, over the course of seven days, right? That average spot price over the seven day period in September was 87% discount to on-demand pricing, right? You can see that it's relatively stable with some noise in there, right? A couple shocks. And so because of those shocks, then, then I need to make a decision around, okay, well, what is my bidding strategy as a reflection of those things, right? And so I can kind of game this a little bit and say, I want to really make sure I'm optimizing for cost. So I'm going to set a very low maximum willingness to pay. And what happens is I can set a maximum willingness to pay at 25% on-demand pricing. And over the course of the seven-day period, I'm able to save 86%. And I only have a few interruptions, but I do have a few interruptions during the course of the week, right? So I don't like the interruptions. So what happens if I set my maximum willingness to pay at 50%, right? My savings goes down from 86% to 85%. So I still get a lot of benefit, but now I'm only interrupted once. And I could take it a step further and say, well, what happens if my bidding strategy is now 75%? And what you see is my savings will stay at 85%, but I won't be interrupted at all, right? So as a rule of thumb, I just say, you know, bid on demand. You'll always pay the spot market price. So we'll continue to benefit from it financially, but we're minimizing the interruptions throughout the course of the week, right? So with these pricing models, it becomes important just that we strike a balance. Again, look for those predictable workloads, always on workloads for our eyes, spiking variable workloads on demand and spot. So our first three pillars were heavily uh, focused on our instance-based services like EC2 or RDS, right? But when it comes to our storage, where do we start that conversation, right? And it really is critical for us to really start by looking at object storage just because it's so foundational. It plays such a key role with our cloud environments, right? Meaning that it's really its own platform, right? Once we get data into S3, then it unlocks the potential of all these other AWS services where we can start innovating around that data. Right? 
And it becomes even easier now for us to get data into, a into AWS, right? We have um, AWS Snowball, Kinesis Firehose, Storage Gateway. And so with all this storage that's flowing into S3, what are we doing in order to optimize that storage? Right? And when we start talking about optimized object storage, it really is a story that looks at the life cycle of that object. Right? So we have S3. S3 is a really great thing for our hot storage requirements. Right? So let's imagine a scenario where I videotape my neighbor's cat and the cat video goes viral. Everyone seems to love cat videos. And this is a great solution, right? Because as a lot of people are viewing that content, interacting and commenting on that content, right? S3 gives us that availability and durability and performance, right? To serve that type of traffic. Over time, I say, you know, I just want to save a buck or two. So I'm going to archive that video. I'm going to throw it in a glacier. Right, and Glacier becomes a really compelling story here because on a per gig basis, we can save 80% off S3 pricing. Right, so we have a solution for our hot storage, we have a solution for our cold storage, and then a year ago, AWS launched kind of this Goldilocks solution, right? This just kind of just right solution. Right, for something that's a little bit cooler than our hot storage, a little bit warmer than our cold storage. Right, S3 and frequent access, or S3IA. And so if I go back to my cat video, right, I don't know why it's cat video, but if I go back to my cat video, right, I post the video, after a couple months, you know, the whole buzz of the cat video has died down, so no one's really watching the video anymore, but when they do watch the video, they don't want to wait two hours to see that video, right, or otherwise they're going on to the next cat guy's video. So SRI provides that solution in that scenario, right, where it has that same performance and durability associated with S3, but a slightly lower availability, right? And in exchange for that, we can save up to 60% off our storage costs, right? So if I look at S3 and I compare it to S3IA, right, S3 is priced on a per gig basis. Similarly, S3IA is priced on a per gig basis, which is 60% discount to S3, right, plus a small retrieval fee, right? So if I'm interacting with that data, every time I'm retrieving it, I'm paying a small cost associated with it. Right? So as a baseline, if I compare the scenario of running a single petabyte in S3 and I compare it to S3IA, right, if I'm receiving, if I'm uh, pulling about 10% of that content over the course of a month, I'm going to save 41%. Right? So there's a lot of benefit to that kind of base case. And I know there's probably a couple uh, risk management folks in the room who are saying, well, what happens if I pull more than 10% over the course of the month? Well, if I rerun these numbers, assuming 50% of that content is pulled over the course of the month, right, my S3 costs stay constant at $24,000, but my S3IA costs go up to $18,000. So I'm still saving 24%, which is pretty good, right? And I can take that to the extreme and say, well, what happens if I actually pull all that content over the course of the month? Well, I'm still saving 2% over S3IA. So there's a lot of benefit here. And as a rule of thumb, we need to start looking for those objects that we're, intera we're interacting with less than one time a month, right? Because we're going to have a break-even point at about 105%. So let's look at a case of how this all plays out. We were working with a customer last summer that over the course of three months doubled its CPU capacity. 
Right? Over the course of that three-month period, the customer was actually able to reduce their EC2 spend by 33%, right? saving them $72,000. Right? So let's talk about how they did it. Right? Because they didn't do anything that we haven't just talked about. Right? And before we dive into the specifics of the case, I want to quickly uh, introduce the concept of an ECU, or Elastic Compute Unit. And the ECU can be a really helpful unit of measurement for us as an economics team because it allows us to start looking at unit costs in a different way. Right? We can start looking at unit costs or the cost of compute capacity within a family, but across families, more importantly, as well as over time. Right? And so there's a number of different ways for us to look at unit costs, but in this example, cost per ECU is the way we did it. So our unit cost for this customer over this three-month period tells us a really interesting story. When we first started working with a customer, they were paying seven cents per ECU, but over the course of three months, they were able to drive it down to a single cent per ECU, right? So how did they do that? Right, well, the first step in our journey was looking at right-sizing their environment, right? So this customer is running a large fleet of web servers, right? and those web servers were running on our previous generation M1 instances. Right, so if we compare M1 instances to our C4 instances, M1s are priced at about seven cents per ECU versus C4s, which are priced at two cents per ECU. Right, so with each one of those generational updates, AWS continues to pack in new price performance and economics that this customer was able to take advantage of in a really meaningful way as they started that migration. Right, and as a result of this step, they're able to drive down their unit costs by 70%. Right, 70%, no contracts, no commitments, no lock-in. Through that right-sizing process alone, this customer is able to drive down their unit costs. Right? And then from there, it becomes a story of how do we start handling this spiky, growing EC2 usage? Right? And so this customer went out and bought a block of RIs to cover about 50% of their always-on resources to drive down their unit costs by another 30%, for total cost savings of 85%, right? And what's interesting here is we start to see this inflection point or trough right at the end of this curve where our unit costs actually start to come back up a little bit. And what's happening there is we're starting to see that spikiness in our web traffic start to impact our unit costs again, right? So this becomes an operator's decision at this point. It becomes a business decision, right? Because if I think that that web traffic is going to be temporary in nature, I can continue to run those instances on demand. And when the traffic subsides, Right, my unit costs should pull back to one cent per ECU as well. Right? But if I think that traffic's gonna be persistent and it's gonna become the new normal, then I, need, I should go out and purchase another block of RIs and drive my unit cost back to a cent. Sounds pretty easy, right? Well, the reality is sometimes these organizational changes or transformations can be complex, right? Because we have competing priorities, competing interests, we have organizational uh, incentives and behavioral issues we need to confront. So this is where our story around implementation comes in, right? How do we start taking these levers and start implementing with, within the organization, right? And this is where our fifth pillar comes in around, around measuring and monitoring so we can start implementing these practices at scale, right? Because when we start talking about measuring and monitoring, Right? Again, it's something that if I'm running a small environment, it's pretty straightforward. But when we start expanding and our usage is not 10 or 20 instances, but it's 100 or 1,000 instances, 
We need to approach that in a slightly different way, right? And with a lot of things within Amazon, that answer typically surrounds automation, right? And so as we go into these environments, we need to make sure that we're automating what we can, right? We need to make sure that we're investing in the type of reporting that is needed to start teasing out these insights and recommendations, right? Building the reports to say, here are the instances that have been running as always on that shouldn't be, right? Here are the instances that are running as R3 8XLs that should be running as M4 mediums, right? We want to identify those objects that maybe haven't been retrieved in the last two or three months or candidates for S3IA, right? And then it becomes, how do we start investing in the automation and the recommendation tools and the analytics so we're surfacing these insights and we're getting them into the hands of the people that can make decisions based on those insights? Right, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about this as we go. Right. And to really, our first step here is starting with tagging, right? Making sure that we have a coherent and consistent tagging strategy across our resources, right? So we get the insight into who's using the resources and for what purpose, right? And if we look at, you know, we're again gonna strike a balance, right? Between the overhead associated with tagging and what's needed to provide those insights, right? Because if we go into our dev team and we say, hey, go put 20 tags on each resource, right? They're gonna laugh at you and then they're, they're just not gonna do it, right? I don't know if you know devs like that, but uh, I'm like that, right? So I wanna know what is the bare minimum that I need in order to start surfacing these insights, right? And spoiler alert, there's really four tags that are needed in order from a cost optimization perspective to really start driving these types of analytics and these types of reports, right? And we have a bonus fifth in there for you, right? So we need to know which cost center are these resources uh, tied to, right? Which applications or workloads are supporting, uh, these resources supporting, right? Who's the user that owns it? When should this resource be turned off? And then our bonus is, is this a candidate for auto-scaling or not, right? And so when we start looking at these, we start to get a better picture of, are these candidates for elasticity or RIs? Who do we follow up with? When should they be terminated? And how does that impact our analysis? Right? And we've seen also solutions out there to help starting employing this type of auto-scaling to help deliver these types of insights at scale, right? And when we start shifting the conversation to, okay, well, what are the tools to help me do this a little bit better? When it comes to measuring monitoring tools, we really have three options, right? And the first is you can do it yourself, right? And this is an option that we've done. And this is an example of a dashboard that we built for a customer, right? Where we went out and looked at a customer's detailed billing report or DBR, and we were able to visualize that with Tableau, right? And these types of dashboards can be really helpful for us because it allows us to identify what our spend is by account and start tracking our metrics, right? But we can also visualize what's happening within the environment. So if something is happening that's unexpected, we can start taking action against that, right? And then the other benefit of this is I can start to use these types of tools to work cross-functionally within the organization, right? Because not only does it tell me what my spend by account is or what my RI coverage is, but it tells me what the savings I've been able to achieve through the investment in the, those RIs, right? And it also tells me what money I'm leaving on the table by not investing in additional RIs. 
So this can, again, be a helpful tool when we're going back to finance or saying this is why we need to invest in RIs, or this is why we need to renew those expiring RIs. Right? Our second option is using a partner. Right? When we work with our customers, these are five names that we see come up pretty regularly. Right? And there's certainly others in this space, but customers seem to be really pleased with the types of tools that these partners are providing because they typically are very high ROI tools. Right? And when we look at that and what that means, what we've seen is partners working with our customers to deliver meaningful savings. So as an example, Cloud Health recently worked with one of our customers, News Corp, and through their recommendation tool, they're able to identify underutilized resources, non-compliant resources, stranded EBS volumes, and really focus on identifying where the waste is within the environment so we can start to take action. Right? And as a result of that, they're able to drive their bill down by 20%. Right? So you can do it yourself. You can use a partner. Your third option is using AWS tools such as Trusted Advisor. Right? And Trusted Advisor similarly can be a very helpful tool for us because it can identify those underutilized resources, you know, EC2 and EBS. It can also help us with providing RI recommendations. But Trusted Advisor is more than just a cost optimization tool. It actually provides checks around security, performance, and fault tolerance as well, right? But the, the cost optimization component of that can be really helpful for us as we start implementing some of these recommendations at scale, right? And we've seen customers like Hangama start to really receive a lot of the benefits associated with Trusted Advisor by being able to identify those underutilized instances or stranded EBS volumes and starting to drive change within the environment, right? So by way of example, I can look at a screenshot of my own dev test environment that has 17 instances running, right? And Trusted Advisor is telling me that 14 of those 17 instances are underutilized, right? So there's a lot of opportunity here for me to go in and either terminate those instances or at the very least look for downsizing opportunities, right? And so I can go in into the console and really see details around each of these individual resources and what's going on. So in the past, there's been this kind of nagging question that I would get from customers, where like, well, how do I start automating some of these best practices? Right? How do we start implementing these across the breadth of our services? Well, last week, the Trusted Advisor team announced a new capability to start integrating with CloudWatch metrics. Right? And what this does is it takes that next step to help us start automating these recommendations at scale. Right? Because what I can do is I can start pairing Trusted Advisor and the recommendations it provides with CloudWatch and Lambda to start implementing these things at scale. Right? So I can go in and set up my CloudWatch event trigger. And when we see that underutilized EC2 resource, I can use Lambda to start taking action against that. Right, so I start to see automation come from these three services playing nicely together. Right, so that's what I've done here, which is going in and starting to write that Lambda function. Right, so I can say, when we see those EC2 instances that have been identified by Trusted Advisor that are underutilized, right, kick off my Lambda function, which is to terminate those instances. Right, and as part of this release, the Trusted Advisor team is going to be posting sample Lambda functions to help you guys start taking this same principle and applying it to your own environment. 
right? And as, as we start to see that happen, we go back into our console, and what we see is those low utilized instances have now been terminated automatically, and it didn't require any work from me other than setting up that type of automation. Pretty cool. So the last piece of the puzzle here is around creating a culture of cost transparency, right? And the customers who have approached cost optimization from a technology solution are maybe going to miss a human element to this, right? Because technology is certainly a big enabler of cost optimization, right? But those who are approaching it from a people, process, and technology challenge are the ones that are going to be able to not only surface those insights, but then build a repeatable, scalable practice that helps us be sustainable in the long term. Right? So in other words, we've got to solve this principal-agent dilemma. Right? Maybe a few finance folks in the room know, know the principal-agent problem well. But imagine tomorrow you're going out to buy a car. Right? And you're thinking about what you can afford versus what you want. Right? And now imagine that car, imagine I'm the guy footing the bill. Right? Bet your answer changed. Right? There may be a guy in the back saying, no, I really like 1991 Honda Accords. But for the most part, what we see is when you're spending someone else's money, you act a little bit differently when you're spending your own money. Right? So what we're left with is this inherent conflict of interest, right? where we have mixed incentives within the organization between those who are spending the money versus those who are actually paying for it, you know, writing those checks. Right, so we need to start thinking about how do we start bridging that divide and starting to align incentives. And the answer is by setting up a team, a center of excellence, to start helping connect those incentives and drive change across the organization. Right? And this team goes in and starts asking these questions like, what are those resources that are running as always on, and are we purchasing our eyes? Right? Or what's preventing us from purchasing our eyes? Right? How are we handing our elasticity needs? Are we using all the resources that are available to us? Are we leveraging our technical account manager? Are we doing well-architected reviews? Right? And finally, it's just how do I become more involved in the process to make sure that we're all speaking the same language and we're all thinking about the same things, we're prioritizing similar activities? Right? So when we look at that center of excellence and we look at the types of things that they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, they're really going to be the steward of change within the organization and driving the accountability and transparency across the organization so that we're affecting change. Right? They're really investing in the automation, the reporting, right? and they're really responsible for then disseminating those assets across the organization so we all see the same data. Right? Being the face of governance, setting up metrics, and really tracking towards those metrics. Right? Because that last piece is so critical because we get what we measure, those metrics and KPIs are really going to drive organizational behavior. Right? If you want to change something, measure it. Right? So when we look at what types of metrics can be helpful, right, we can think of those metrics that tie back to the pillars we just talked about. Right? What are those metrics that define what it means to be cost-optimized? Right? And what we see is there's really four good metrics. I'm sure there's more out there, but we see four that we feel like are good measures that define cost optimization. It's what does my RI coverage look like? What is my utilization of those RIs? Right? What percent of my instances are running elastic, uh, in an elastic way? 
and which percentage of my instances are appropriately sized based on those CloudWatch metrics we talked about earlier. Right? And this can be a really helpful way for us to get a lens for how we're doing on implementing this type of program within the organization. Right? But I would encourage you guys also to think about there are two types of metrics. Right? There are input-based metrics and there are output-based metrics. Right? These are good input-based metrics. But I would say, think about what creates value for your organization, right? Think about what are those metrics that we should be setting up to say, this is not just what our cost is, but this is what we're getting for it, right? So what is the value driver for this workload or application, right? If it's a production workload, you know, it's pretty straightforward, right? It could be active subscribers, it could be any revenue generating mechanism, right? If it's an internal tool, it could be internal FTE supported, it could be experiments, right? But when we start thinking along these lines, all of a sudden we're not talking just about cost, but we're thinking about value, right? Not just what are we paying, but what are we getting for that? And in that way, we're starting to manage towards outputs or outcomes, right? And that's what's valuable as an organization because what happens is if I see my bill going up over the course of a month, right, I have two answers to why that may be happening. The first is, I'm not doing a good enough job on the cost of optimization front, right? Maybe things have changed. The other answer is that we're delivering more value, and that's a good thing, right? Our user base has gone up, we're running more reports or experiments, right? So it gives us visibility as an organization of what are we getting for what we're investing. So last chapter, where do we go from here? Right, where do we start when we walk out the door? So the first step in this journey is making sure that we're setting up that center of excellence. Right? It's really critical to identify an individual or individuals who can help start stewarding this change and developing this type of internal program. Right? And to make them successful, we need to make sure we're arming them the right, with the right tools. Right? Whether it's building your own tools, whether it's using partner tools, trusted advisor, right? And then collaborating with them to identify what we think those metrics are within the organization, not just our inputs, but our outputs. Right? Get buy-in on all those metrics. And once we have those metrics in place, we can start to say, well, what is our goal? How do we want to affect change throughout the course of the year? And then finally, take advantage of the resources that are available to you. Use partners, use support, help accelerate this type, of, this type of transformation within the organization. And you'll know you've done it right when you start to see that the processes that you've set up start to behave in a way that eerily resembles a virtuous cycle, right? Because we have these reports and automation that's providing us with the insights to arm the decision makers, or our IT teams, or service teams to make decisions based on that data to start implementing some of these cost optimization best practices, they can immediately show up on our next month bill, and it feeds that cycle over and over again, right? But at the heart of that process is your center of excellence, right, which keeps that flywheel moving and moving and continuing to improve over time, right? So we've talked about some best practices, right, some tips to get started, right? Last year at this time, Intuit was sitting in this room, and they left saying, you know, we have some work to do. So they went out and started implementing their own cost optimization program, right? And on Thursday, we get the opportunity to hear about that journey, hear about how they set that up, 
some of the roadblocks they experienced as they went through that. Right, and we start to bridge the gap between uh, frameworks and implementation. Right? And we get to hear about how over the course of the last 12 months they're able to reduce their spend and improve their efficiency by 40%. So I encourage you guys to go check that out. And then finally, we have another well-architected boot camp tomorrow. If you're not able to attend that, we have a new cost optimization white paper that is available online on our well-architected website. So I encourage you to download that. And then finally, for all of you folks who decided to delay your happy hour by an hour, we're offering a free trusted advisor trial for 30 days for everyone in the room, right? So on December 6th, the trial will kick in. It'll run for 30 days. And you'll get the full benefit and features and functionality associated with trusted advisor, right? You just have to log in, use your email that's tied to your badge you swiped in on, and start using trusted advisor. Start, start experimenting. It's a really good opportunity, again, to start playing with some of the new automation capabilities, right? How do we start using these new CloudWatch metrics and Lambda start driving some of that innovation. Right. And with that, I thank you for your time. Uh, we'll be taking questions up here for a few minutes after the session. And do not forget to fill out your evaluations.